This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Christy Schreiber, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our second week in our discussions about The Great Gatsby, and I can see that we are just barely scratching the surface of uh, this deceptively complex novel. And when I first read it, I thought I was just reading a murder mystery and a romance, but this is <laughs> oh, no. far from the case, uh, and last week we only got started. Only got started. So true. And we read basically... Quite a bit of the preamble out loud. Is is that what we call that? A preamble <laughs> like in the Constitution? Yeah, I know. It might be a little but, dramatic. <laughs> well, uh, I guess that's a good word for it. Um, uh, this little introduction that really isn't the story per se. And uh, Nick establishes pretty quickly that this is a story about ethics and about morality and about money. Well, and he starts with his father's words of wisdom and then goes on to talk about conduct. And we are led to understand that there is just something too much going on in the behaviors of these people that we are about to observe. It's not just excessive, it's exploitative. I mean, exactly. And we talked uh, again about point of view, and in some ways it's like Emma and that we're in a character's head, but this is different because... Uh, it is a first-person perspective, and I wouldn't say an unreliable narrator because we do rely on his judgment, but perhaps a semi-reliable <laughs> one. Aren't we all, those semi-reliable? Uh, true, very true. Uh, he's, he's flawed, uh, but he comes across as both self-effacing and arrogant, which is quite a trick. Um, arrogant because Nick establishes himself as uh, ethically superior to everyone else before we meet anyone else. But then that keeps on going all the way oh, to the yes. end. And it's strange because at the same time as we uh, find ourselves naturally accepting that he's the only good person in the store, there's also so much not to like about him. That's definitely true if you're a woman. And certainly by the end of chapter three, when he basically confesses on cheating, not on one or two, but three girls. He's if a you, Yes. If you think uh, of these romantic 
episodes as relationships in the traditional sense, which I don't know that we can. I don't see a lot of intimacy really at all in the whole book. It was the 1920s. I I guess. Uh, I find myself liking him because he seems more down to earth than everyone else. And he lives in what he describes as a a weather-beaten bungalow and (laughs) dismisses Daisy's praise of him as a rose because he's not even slightly one. And he's a snob because he thinks he's better than everyone else. But uh, we somehow, and I guess strangely, agree with him that he actually is. Yes, he is better than the characters in the story. The same way that, you know... All middle-class working people think we're better than entitled people or privileged people of any sort. And, of course, I'm talking in stereotypes when I say things like, all, no disrespect to rich people, no disrespect to working people. It's in the spirit of deprecating humor to all. Okay, well, uh, that dichotomy um, has always been a part of the tension of uh, what some people call the American dream. And we, we like to think that this country isn't like other countries and that we don't have a corrupted path to wealth. And we want to believe that in this country, hard work will get you to the top because we have justice in this country. Oh, but Fitzgerald is going to absolutely challenge and really bitterly mock that idea. He does it right out of the gate when he introduces the richest guy in the story, Tom Buchanan. You will not find anyone more racist, more chauvinistic, more arrogant, and more useless than Tom Buchanan. He inherits a bunch of money biologically with his buddy. He wins the genetic lottery. But instead of using all these advantages for the betterment of mankind, he does nothing but self-indulge himself. Pointless hobbies, idleness, sexual escapades, which is bad enough. But then when he gets in trouble, he bullies other people into doing whatever he wants and forces this demigod status of, that he has because he's a wealthy person. <laughs> yes, and, and where um, America was founded on these virtues of self-improvement and improvement of society and equality and justice. I mean, Fitzgerald makes the case that once you achieve wealth and status— you find there is a cost to that. Uh, This book claims that there is a paradox there because by reaching a level of wealth and power somehow connected to the traditional American dream, the dream itself inevitably becomes corrupted. Yes, and that is a very complicated idea. I do hesitate to use that language a little bit. I know everybody does. I'm uncomfortable personally with the term American dream because it seems so ethnocentric. I mean, all people dream to improve. And we saw that in Austin's portrayal of Regency England. And you can go wherever you want, all over the world. There's a variation of it even in Coelho's The Alchemist. Everyone wants a path upward to prestige, power, success. It's not American. But in defense of America, neither is the idea of wealth and power morphing into self-ambition an American anomaly either. (laughs) Right. And and I would like to say what we said in the last episode, Uh, uh, a point um, I made in that when people talk about the American dream, many times it's a social critic using the American dream as a straw man to beat up on American culture. So. In that regard, Fitzgerald's really reflecting the times. But um, anyway, those are all universal issues. And Fitzgerald 
was very sensitive to the farcical nature of people. I love that word. He criticizes the corruption that seems to be inevitable um, with power. Uh, and he does it in an American context. And what I mean is that uh, in this story, he illustrates human corruption uh, through our American history and legacy that, that's notably religious and moralistic and more than other places, honestly. And uh, many, although not all of our founders, left Europe for religious reasons and attempted to build a system that would protect its members from the selfish ambition of uh, wealth and power that's so innate in the human condition. It is a dream. And one Fitzgerald, uh, who grew up the poorest kid in a rich school himself, expresses uh, in this text, as an illusion, the upper, upper class, those titans who um, really hit the genetic jackpot by uh, virtue of privilege or access in this book, are not bound by ethical law. Tom certainly isn't. No, he's not. In this story, the creators of legitimate wealth are illegitimate. And the man who gained wealth through criminal means or illegitimately seems not more ethical, but ironically more honest. I know that is ironic because the corrupt murderer is the honest one because at least he owns his corruption. He's not pretending. There's no veneer of sanctimony in Gatsby, really. What makes us, in some sense, walk through these ideas with Nick, uh, that narrator, because he goes in of the story, then he's going to come out of the story. Sometimes he's the old Nick telling us the story from the safe distance of middle of the West, but sometimes Nick is caught up in all the events uh, himself, and he doesn't really have a clear idea of what he's looking at. This is particularly easy to see, both at the end of Chapter 2 and at the end of Chapter 3. Well, this kind of reminds me of a great quote from the Gilded Age, which is before the time period we're in, where uh, one prominent businessman said, the difference between an honest politician and a dishonest politician, an honest politician will be bought and he'll stay bought. <laughs> So there's there's the kind of morality we're swimming around no, in right here. Oh, it's not um, good. So there's one more thing to review before we move into chapter two, uh, and that is something I would have missed, all the ironic symbols. I mean, uh, the Middle West represents middle class virtues, and the eggs, uh, East and West, represent rich people. We've only met the East Eggers so far, and they're the old established families, the um, old money, so to speak. And they got their money the old-fashioned way. <laughs> I wish I could get that. <laughs> they inherited it. Uh, they have a pretense of getting it by honest means. and um, Although, who knows if that's true? The East Eggers have at least gotten their wealth through traditional means. I mean, the system has worked for them. Uh, we also talked about colors. How Fitzgerald uses traditional symbols but makes them mean the opposite of what other they are supposed to mean. And that is difficult to keep in mind when you're reading this book. So... <laughs> Uh, white represents, instead of purity, it represents false purity. And red represents the opposite of love. It's violence and rage. And um, gold, which traditionally represents wealth, actually represents corruption. Um, are we going to get into more colors today? Yes, we oh, are. The colors make sense. I mean, of course, Daisy wears white. She, everyone's supposed to think she's innocent, and she's just not. I do want to say that white is the far most mentioned color in the book. It's mentioned 47 times and almost always, ironically. 
Yellow and blue are tied for second place, and we're really going to talk about those colors today because they're going to stand out in chapters two and three. Each chapter really kind of highlights a different color. (laughs) I did want to point out, though, before we get into all the colors, the funsy origins of Daisy and Jordan's name. Daisy, of course, is a white and yellow flower, so you get the color imagery there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But her last name is Faye, and that word has two meanings if you look it up. Wherever you look upwards, I guess no one looks them up anymore in the dictionary. But the word fae means a fairy. Uh, And, of course, she is, in a sense, that kind of fae. But it's also, and I didn't know this. Somebody told me this. It's an old derogatory term for white people. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. Bear that in mind. She is not what she appears. She is not innocent. She is nothing like that. Jordan, on the other hand, is named after two popular cars from the period, the Jordan and the Baker. And we will definitely talk more about her because, like me, she's not a good driver. Oh, <laughs> well, Christy, you, you don't have to be that honest. I mean, Christy isn't a terrible driver. Uh, she doesn't <laughs> crash cars. She just has a small habit of dinging and scuffing them up. It's true. And she's met quite a few curbs and garage doors in her day. <laughs> Sad, but true. And more on that, too, because cars in this book reflect their owners. So pay attention to how the cars are described, because that's going to mean something in every case. Now, on to chapter two. We mentioned last week that there is a party in every chapter, and the party in chapter two occurs in Manhattan, which we'll get to in a minute. But to get to Manhattan from the eggs... You have to cross the Valley of Ashes, and it is dusty, obscure, and above all, gray. (laughs) So, do you happen to know the number of references to gray by any chance? Of course I do. (laughs) Okay. 16. Thank you very much. There's a lot of research on colors in this book. Tons of charts and diagrams that will answer just that question. Gray, though, seems to be the only color in the book that's not used really ironically. Lots of people make the connection between Fitzgerald's Valley of Ashes and T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland, which we might do later on. But even the biblical Valley of Death really is supposed to be associated with this place because there's a lot of biblical allusions in this book, too. And that connection uh, with this particular place is definitely there. Although I and I was telling you that we this Fitzgerald takes jabs at all the groups of people, I like to tell my students that if we'd been living in this area, we would not be in the eggs and we wouldn't be in Manhattan. We'd be safely tucked away in the valley of valley ashes. of the ashes. Yes, and he doesn't describe it very well. So Gary, give us um, your historical read. On this section, the description of the Valley of Ashes has little to do with moving the plot forward, actually, and so much more about commenting on society, which, by the way, is something that's very strange about this book. In almost every book, I can't even think of another book, where the symbols don't have to do with the obvious theme, because the obvious theme in this book is about repeating the past, but it has to do with the subtextual theme. So all the symbols are very subtextual, and they're also very political. Well, this book, uh, to me, does feel very political, um, almost as much as Animal Farm or Fahrenheit 451. Uh, And it takes a political bent, very obviously, through um, Buchanan's racist rant and his 
reference to what um, notably even called the most racist piece of literature in the 1920s, titled The Rising Tide of Color by Lothrop Stoddard. And uh, to this sharp, I mean, it's tied to this sharp, dark discussion of the Valley of Ashes. And from a historical perspective, it's interesting to really look at how agrarian the language is uh, when talking about a, a really a totally urban environment. And listen to what he describes. He says this. This is a valley of ashes, a fantastic farm where ashes grow like wheat into ridges and hills and grotesque gardens, where ashes take the forms of houses and chimneys and rising smoke. And finally, with a transcendent effort of men who move dimly and already crumbling through the powdery air, occasionally a line of gray cars crawl along an invisible track, gives out a ghastly creek comes to rest, and immediately the ash-gray men swarm up with the leaden spades and stir up an impenetrable cloud which screens their obscure operations from your sight. You have to remember, if you want to talk about the American dream, you're talking about Thomas Jefferson's American dream, and it was his dream, really, of an agrarian state. Um, Jefferson believed and the educated yeoman farmer as the the backbone of the republic and that cities where where all the evils of mankind were most prevalent and uh, the road between the eggs and manhattan is this i mean look how his dream is corrupted i mean it's ugly it's grotesque the men are ash gray there's nothing happy there uh, jefferson's dream has gone incredibly wrong here it's decayed well yeah and it's going to get worse look at that billboard and i like to tell my students because we live here uh, in the ash gray valley of ashes. <laughs> yeah, that we, not just rich people, are targets of Fitzgerald's judgment in some sense because we are the industry that is creating the wealth that is being siphoned off by this you know, wealthy establishment that's both legitimate and illegitimate, both old money and new money. Those people, although they disdain each other, get along and agree on this point that they need to siphon off from of us. We go to our jobs and we just plod away endlessly and hopelessly. It also is even going to take an existential turn here that Kafka would appreciate. <laughs> oh I know. And I'm not saying I agree with all this. I'm just saying Fitzgerald is portraying all this. Look here, overlooking the road, and specifically the garage where Wilson and Myrtle live. Remember, Wilson is described as a spiritless man, anemic and faintly handsome, and he's married to Myrtle, who we'll find out is Tom's woman, the one that called him during dinner. But overlooking their house is an advertisement. And you remember advertisements advertise things. They seduce us to get things. But this advertisement is a very important symbol in the novel. It's the advertisement of an oculus. That's an eye doctor. Now, eyes just all over this book are important. You're going to see some, but track with me. So we're going to have here Dr. T.J. Eckelberg. The eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg are blue. The glasses are yellow, but it's faded and it's old. So it's decayed as well. And it says this, his eyes are dimmed a little by many paintless days under sun and rain brewed on over the solemn dumping ground. Just like Fitzgerald uses colors to criticize and he uses cars to criticize, he's also going to use eyes to criticize. We're going to meet a man shortly 
that he calls owl eyes. And Daisy's eyes are going to provide insight later on. And Nick, we just saw in the last chapter, tries to avoid eyes. But now we have gigantic eyes. Later on, this is towards the end of the story, at the end of the story, Wilson is going to talk to this billboard and reference it as if talking to God. So he draws this in this symbolism, this theological thing. We'll find out that Wilson has kind of personified God. He looks at this billboard with these eyes that look back at him, and he kind of thinks of it as being real, the same way kids impose personalities on a doll or a stuffed animal. He believes that those eyes are watching and judging him. But if Wilson thinks of these eyes as the eyes of God, the criticism here is deep because Fitzgerald is criticizing those of us who live in the valley, those of us working people who attend church and pray to God. And he's suggesting that those of us who pray to God, it's just an illusion. We might as well be praying or talking to this lifeless, tired billboard. The eyes are blue. Blue is the color of peace, serenity, contemplation, order, the things that you look for in a divinity. But in this book, Blue is always an illusion. Well, next chapter, we're going to see Gadsby's gardens are blue. These eyes are blue. It's made up. They're not real. Praying to God for Fitzgerald is just this vain attempt of an ignorant underclass projecting hope into their lifeless lives with this made up illusion of gold, wealth, and essence. But it's not true. It's absolutely a human construct. Um, At this point, is it safe to say that Fitzgerald is accurately reflecting the nihilism of post-World War I? (laughs) Uh, I mean, it doesn't get harsher than that. Well, I mean, everything's under fire from from Gatsby's point (laughs) of view. So just don't take offense. That's right. Everybody takes a shot in this. And Anyway, that's an extremely harsh criticism of uh, of Christian faith, which was really a big part of American culture during this time period and, and really still is today. And uh, there's a lot of religious language, even the phrase Valley of Ashes, which is reminiscent of the Valley of Death in the Bible, and obvious, it has obvious biblical undertones. And, but I've also read that T.J. Eckelberg represents Thomas Jefferson. And since Thomas Jefferson is one of my favorite American figures, yes, he is. The initials <laughs> T.J. immediately jumped out to me. I like the way he, I want to point out he's one of my favorite characters because he is so much more complex than anybody else. Anyway, uh, Fish Gerald, by the way, um, also admired and loved Thomas Jefferson, and uh, Jefferson envisioned an America whose backbone was an agrarian dream made up of happy and independent farmers. And if you break down the word Eckelberg. Eckel connects to the German word for ugly and Berg, the German word for a city. So Fitzgerald is saying, this is Thomas Jefferson's disgusting city. Uh, Burn. (laughs) This is a corruption of Thomas Jefferson's dream for this great country. Oh, well, either way you look at it, historically or religiously, I guess it was designed to be both. Fitzgerald has not made Wilson and Myrtle's community a very inviting place, and he has not made them attractive people either. We read the description of Wilson, but I think Myrtle's description is really funny. At least, I wouldn't want to be described like this. (laughs) The thickish figure of a woman blocked out the light from the office door. She was in her middle 30s 
and faintly stout, but she carried her surplus flesh sensuously as some women can. Her face, above a spotted dress of dark blue crepuchin, contained no facet or gleam of beauty, but there was an immediately perceptible vitality about her, as if the nerves of her body were continually smoldering. <laughs> she smiled slowly and walking through her husband as if he were a ghost, shook hands with Tom, looking him flush in the eye. Then she wet her lips. <laughs> it's very sensuous and very unattractive. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. I mean, uh, Tom tells her to uh, get on the train, and she does. And uh, where the, from there, they all go to Tom's apartment in downtown Manhattan for a drunken party, which Nick has described this way. He says... I have been drunk just twice in my life, and the second time was that afternoon. So everything that happened has a dim, hazy cast all over it. I mean, that's a famous quote, but I think he's probably not telling the truth here. <laughs> Seems to me he's drunk more than twice just in the book alone. Well, uh, that's probably true. I told you he's unreliable. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I wish we really had time to get into the weeds because there's a lot of symbolism to go, to go here and all the details of this drunken party with the McKees. It's very chaotic. Another well-known line from this chapter is when Nick is talking to Catherine, Myrtle's sister, and she tells Nick that Myrtle and Tom are not together because Daisy is a Catholic and Catholics don't believe in divorce, to which Nick says, as a narrator, but not to Catherine. Daisy was not a Catholic, and I was a little shocked at the elaborateness of the lie. <laughs> <laughs> this chapter is set in the third setting of the novel, Manhattan. So look how we have this break that we started off in middle America that represents traditional values, integrity, hard work, honesty. But it's a quite boring existence. So then you have the eggs, and they represent wealth. But what does Manhattan represent? Well, it represents a place that is totally devoid of every sense of morality. It's enticing. It's seductive. Anything can happen. It's lawless. And in one sense, that's good. But it's also 100% obviously corrupt. Manhattan is where the big fortunes are created. It's where the deals are made, which we'll see next week. But it's also where we're going to see Tom stashing Myrtle in an apartment full of references to Versailles, but where he brutally just smashes in her face and breaks her nose. Yes, quite shocking <laughs> when I read that. Well, it is, just because she mentioned Daisy's name. Mm. Okay, um, is it time to get to chapter three? The, yes. Uh, that is the, the one eternally immortalized in the movies. That's the first big party at Gatsby's house. I know. Everyone loves it, and we should. It's Fitzgerald at his best. So many images, so many symbols. This is poetry. It's also where we finally get to meet Gatsby, not just look at him from far away as he's extending his hands. And look how colorful and how noisy everything is. Remember, the colors are symbols. So it's okay that the gardens are blue. You don't have to try to visualize, visualize that literally. Nothing really seems realistic in some sense to possibly visualize but if the color of chapter one was white and the color of chapter two is gray the color that comes out more than any other in this chapter is yellow traditionally yellow or gold uh represent well yellow represents enlightenment gold represents wealth 
But here, both seem to represent corruption. This is a dream. And I may suggest if you want to get biblical, which we already did with your imagery, because later on, Gatsby is going to be called a son of God. This is the Garden of Eden, except just like everything else, Fitzgerald is ironic. So when the garden is blue, remember blue is the color of an illusion, just like we saw with Dr. T.J. Eckelberg. This is no Eden. It's the illusion of one. Well, uh, illusion or not, I would have loved to have attended one of those parties. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> um, there is so much extravagance. I mean, uh, all those crates of oranges and lemons being pressed by machines. and uh, But yet it still feels vulgar. I mean, I love the line where Nick says everyone conducted themselves according to the rules of behavior associated <laughs> With an amusement park. <laughs> I know. Uh, and that is pretty easy to visualize. Uh, there are just some things people do at amusement parks they wouldn't do anywhere else. We hope. But at amusement park, since everyone is hot and sweaty and sticky and standing endlessly in line looking your worst, it seems okay to scream randomly with your hands in the air, walk around trying to get soaked by sprinklers and you know eating candied apples and cotton candy and giant hot dogs on Gross. sticks. <laughs> so Fitzgerald wants to portray this new money as vulgar, kind of in the same vein. Uh, because even if people look rough in amusement parks, they also go through a lot of money there. And uh, this is an undercurrent of everything being undignified and tacky even amid a mass of wealth. And in this chapter, however, uh, at least from Nick's vantage point, that really seems fun. Well, true. And later on, when we get to the second time that he has a party there and we see it through Daisy's eyes, some of that is kind of worn off. But here, we're going to look at it freshly through Nick's eyes. And it's so much sensory overlord. This party has an orchestra with a whole pit full of oboes and trombones and saxophones and violas and cornets and piccolos and high and low drums. It has people swimming. There are cars parked five deep. The cocktails are described as floating. It's noisy. It's full of laughter. There are, and I quote, enthusiastic meetings between women who never knew each other's names. <laughs> enthusiastic. <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> Nick, by the way, wears white. There's your color to the party. And he decides to get drunk out of awkwardness, which is a funny confession and may give credence to your suggestion that he may have gotten drunk more than twice in his life. Mm -hmm. But as he walks around the party, he hears rumor after rumor about Gatsby, this person that no one knows, but most are fairly sure he killed a man. <laughs> and we meet a guy, Nick calls Owl Eyes, and Jordan delivers one of those memorable lines. This is one of my personal favorites. I love this. She tells Nick, I like large parties. They're so intimate. At small parties, there isn't any privacy. That's a great example of a paradox, by the way. <laughs> exactly. Wow, what a great thought. And, and, and why does that line stand out to you? Because it's a feeling I understand completely and an opinion I disagree with entirely. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, it's a paradox because you don't think of large parties as being intimate because they're so full of people, but they actually are. If you go to a large party or to a concert, think of it that way, you will likely walk away only having talked to the people that you came with. You may not have met a single new person, even though the venue's crowded. 
Jordan likes that because she can hide. But unlike Jordan, I prefer small parties where you walk away feeling like you met new people and you made new friends because, well, they just couldn't hide from you. What kind of parties do you like? (laughs) (laughs) I like both, I guess, honestly. And um, as a musician, I love playing uh, in the band at a large party because people are having a lot of fun. It's always great fun to be around that. And I enjoy that. But I also like to mingling. But Maybe not as much as you do, because honestly, you're about 200% extrovert. (laughs) Well, the heart of the plot in this chapter is meeting Gatsby. We figure out it's Gatsby because he has this awkward catchphrase that no one else uses. He uses this real archaic phrase, old sport. (laughs) Old sport. Not Okay. Uh, Well, now the phrase itself, I'm thinking, is really meant to suggest um, that Gatsby's trying to sound British. Oh, you think so? Yeah, we'll, we'll find out later that, that Gatsby attended Oxford, and uh, sport is a word, in my understanding, that upper-class people use to refer to each other, and huh. I think even today I've heard it used by Australians, but it really isn't an American expression, and uh, if I were guessing, I would think Gatsby met a bunch of rich people at Oxford, and they use it, so he thought it was a thing rich people said, and he incorporated it in his persona. Uh, but it sounds strange coming out of the mouth of an American. Well, that's a pretty interesting explanation. And it's obviously a trap that Gatsby falls into more than just with that phrase. He's always trying to mimic the mannerisms of the wealthy. And there's too many tells. He really can't pull it off. Really, nobody can. <laughs> there are always mm-hmm. tells. Emma Woodhouse would tell you that. Of course, she found that no one was more insufferable than a pretender or an upstart. An upstart. <laughs> yes. But it, I will say that Fitzgerald challenges Emma a little bit on that. Gatsby is a pretender and he is an upstart. But his attempts at hiding his humble upbringings are obvious. They almost appear, I don't know, childlike. They're naive. And he... He definitely doesn't snub people like Mrs. Elton, that's for sure. In fact, my favorite thing about Gatsby comes out in this chapter. I actually really think about this quote from time to time because it's something I personally aspire to be, and I love the way Fitzgerald says it. I want to read it. Now, Nick has been stumbling around all night trying to find Gatsby, and eventually he's approached by a man who references World War One. They were both in the war together, and the man references his hydroplane he just purchased. He invites Nick up in it, and then we find out he's Gatsby. Nick apologizes for not knowing who he is, but then he describes Gatsby, and I want to read it to you. This is what he says. He smiled understandingly, Much more than understandingly, it was one of those rare smiles with a quality of external reassurance in it that you may come across four or five times in life. It faced, or seemed to face, the whole external world for an instant and then concentrated on you with an irresistible prejudice in your favor. It understood you just as far as you wanted to be understood believed in you as you would like to believe in yourself and assured you that it had precisely the impression of you that at your best you hoped to convey. I absolutely love those words. What a beautiful way to talk about hope and lack of judgment. It's the way I want to look at people. You see the best of them. You overlook the worst. You see them exactly 
as they want you to see them, and you smile. What an awesome gift to give to somebody. Don't you agree? <laughs> uh, yes. Well, <laughs> and, and you know, uh, people who have met uh, President Clinton say he has that gift uh, that when he shakes huh. your hand, he makes you feel like you're the most important person in the room and he has your undivided attention. Well, that's the skill that got him elected president of the United States. Talk about a rags to riches story that the American dream gone right from a single mom household in Hope, Arkansas to the White House in Washington, D.C. Even Fitzgerald must concede that there are not many places in the world where somebody can pull that off. <laughs> uh, well, there's no charm doubt. Charm or no charm. Yes. Well, and, and truth be told, there are, are lots of people in this country that have similar stories that are not presidents of the United States, of course. But uh, we have hundreds of students whose parents are first-generation Americans who came to this country with nothing but almost literally the clothes on their back. And today, their children are attending Ivy League schools um, or have successful businesses. And I can name um, a dozen off the top of my head from uh India and Somalia and Djibouti who are getting uh, medical degrees from Vanderbilt and law degrees from Harvard and engineering degrees, etc. I mean, that's um, true. I can do that too. I'm not reading this book as a criticism of that. Uh, what Fitzgerald challenges is what happens to the next generation, which is super interesting. What happens to us when we get the money? Uh, will we be poisoned by the foul dust? I like that term, of greed and corruption. And in some ways, Fitzgerald himself um, is that Bill Clinton rags to riches story, um, except two generations in. I mean, his his grandparents uh, had something in common with our students. Uh, who, his parents immigrated from war-torn regions around the world, and Fitzgerald's grandparents were straight 1850 potato famine Irish. <laughs> <laughs> to use Fitzgerald's own words, uh, they came to America and made money in a grocery business enough to pay uh, for their grandson to attend expensive private schools as well as Princeton. And um, unfortunately, his father was a poor businessman. His mother was weird. Apparently, she did things like uh, dress and behave oddly in public. And his parents weren't wealthy. Uh, so also like Eric Blair, also known as George Orwell, um, he felt like the poor kid had eaten. Aww. Yeah, he, he could be amongst the rich, but not one of them, really. And um, while being in the service, he met and fell in love with a girl named uh, Zelda Zare. And uh, the she's the daughter of a judge from Alabama, but she refused to marry him, although apparently she loved him, too, because he was too poor to marry. And Fitzgerald has this funny line that he wrote in a personal notebook once, and it said this, I didn't have the two top things, great animal magnetism <laughs> or money. I had the two second things, though, good looks and intelligence. So I always got the top girl. <laughs> well, Fitzgerald, except you didn't get Zelda until you can make bank. But, you know, he didn't even resent that attitude that she had toward him. It's almost like he understood and would have done the same thing if the rules we're reversed. I don't want to talk too much about Zelda because we'll save that when we talk about Daisy later on. But the point to make here is that by 1919, Fitzgerald had the girl because he had turned his fortune around. And now he had, to use your phrase, one of those top two things. Mm -hmm. I mean, his first book, This Side of Paradise, which, by the way, was heavily biographical, was an astounding success. He not only became rich... He is now famous. 
If the purpose of money is to realize the promises of life, that's what Fitzgerald said, uh, then, you know, the money and Fitzgerald's first breakout novel, uh, which ushered in the jazz age, did for Fitzgerald what Gadsby was trying to do. And by the way, Gadsby pulled all this off before he was 20, well, by the time he was 23 years old. Hmm, Go Gadsby. You don't want to peak too early, you know. Oh, he did peak. And yet, let's bring this back to the close of Chapter 3 of The Great Gatsby, because there is a connection between Fitzgerald's life and here. Even here, when we are at the peak of Gatsby's glory, this beautiful garden of illusion where everything overwhelms Nick with its so sensory overload and color and sound and money, look what Fitzgerald does. He ends the party with a car crash. And then he ends it after that with a car discussion with Jordan, who, by the way, like we said, is named after cars. Now, everything, everything, everything is symbolic. You everything? can't get past that. Everything. Okay. Noted. <laughs> the cars in this book represent the people who drive them and the lives they're leading. Look at here. George has a dust-covered, dilapidated vehicle, poor thing. Gatsby has this crazy, overblown, gaudy car, which is this cream-yellowy color. Yellow plus white. Tom has a classy blue car, but he drives it very carelessly. Although we'll, we won't notice this until later, but Daisy is the most careless driver of all. We'll see that at the end. But what we have to notice that Nick doesn't have a showy car. He doesn't have a colorful car. He has an old Dodge. <laughs> That's Middle West for you. Okay. <laughs> at two in the morning, here we are at the end of Gatsby's party. And this is so funny and there's so, so much irony here. He's going to end the party with a car crash. And it's really a funny event. If you haven't caught on to Fitzgerald's humor, this is a chapter that it's a great place to see it. And there are so many one-liners that are just funny in that um, deadpan sort of way. And uh, here's a funny line. Jordan's undergraduate who is now engaged in an obstetrical conversation with two course girls and who implored me to join him, I went inside. <laughs> That's a funny way to say, uh, this college kid is trying to seduce these two chorus girls, and he wants Nick to help him out. I and mean, It makes you chuckle once you understand what he's talking about. I know. Who uses the word obstetrics like that? Right. <laughs> There's a lot here that's funny and understated like that. I mean, husbands and wives are yelling at each other, wanting to leave, wanting to stay. But let me read this. A dozen headlights illuminated a bizarre and tumultuous scene. In a ditch beside the road, right side up, but violently short of one wheel, rested a new coupe which had left Gatsby's drive not two minutes before. The sharp jut of a wall accounted for the detachment of the wheel, which was now getting considerable attention from half a dozen curious chauffeurs. However, as they had left their cars blocked the road, a harsh, discordant din from those in the rear had been audible for some time and added to the already violent confusion of the scene. A man in a long duster had dismounted from the wreck and now stood in the middle of the road, looking from the car to the tire and from the tire to the observers in a pleasant, puzzled way. See, he explained, it went in the ditch. The fact was infinitely astonishing to him, and I recognized first the unusual quality of wonder— and then the man. 
It was the late patron of Gatsby's library. How'd it happen? He shrugged his shoulders. I know nothing whatever about mechanics, he said decisively. But how did it happen? Did you run into the wall? Don't ask me, said Owl Eyes, washing his hands of the whole matter. I know very little about driving. Next to nothing, it happened, and that's all I know. Well, if you're a poor driver, you oughtn't to try driving at night. But I wasn't even trying, he explained indignantly. I wasn't even trying. An awed hush fell upon the bystanders. Do you want to commit suicide? You're lucky if it was just a wheel, a bad driver, and not even trying. You don't understand, explained the criminal. I wasn't driving. There's another man in the car. Hmm. Can you see where he's going? Fitzgerald is using symbolism to describe in America drunk on wealth. And our wealth has made us careless. It's made us irresponsible. It's a foul dust. This chapter ends with Nick pulling out of the story. He takes it out of the chronological order and drops in a few details of his life. He's carrying on an affair with a girl from his office. He's falling for the seduction of the wild Manhattan life. And then he concludes with a story about Jordan Baker, who he runs into again and apparently begins to see romantically. He says this, I wasn't actually in love, but I felt sort of a tender curiosity. Let's read this very famous passage. One day I found out what it was, something he had remembered from before. When we were at a house party together up in Warwick, she left a borrowed car out in the rain and the top down and then lied about it. And suddenly I remembered the story about her that had eluded me the night at Daisy's. At her first big tournament, there was a row that nearly reached the newspapers, a suggestion that she had moved her ball from a bad lie in the semifinal round. The thing approached the proportions of a scandal, then died away. A caddy retracted his statement, and the only other witness admitted that he might have made a mistake. The incident and the name had remained together in my mind. Jordan Baker instinctively avoided clever, shrewd men, and now I saw that this was because she felt safer on a plane where any divergence from a code would be thought impossible. She was incurably dishonest. She wasn't able to endure being at a disadvantage, and given this unwillingness, I suppose she had begun dealing in subterfuges when she was very young in order to keep that cool, insolent smile turned to the world and yet satisfy the demands of her hard, jaunting body. It made no difference to me. Dishonesty in a woman is a thing you never blame deeply. I, that line just cracks me up. <laughs> hmm. I was casually sorry, and then I forgot. It was on that same house party that we had a curious conversation about driving a car. It started because she passed so close to some workman that out fender flicked a button on one man's coat. You're a rotten driver. Either you ought to be more careful or you oughtn't to drive at all. I am careful. No, you're not. Well, other people are. What's that got to do with it? They'll keep out of my way. It takes two to make an accident. <laughs> it takes two to make an accident. Does it? Well, and then there's Nick at the end of this very chapter talking about his romantic escapades with these three women. And then after he tells us that he has these three women, he makes this claim and says that he's one of the few honest people he has ever known. 
I don't know. Is it because he's telling us about all this? Admitting his double dealings. Well, uh, I don't know exactly what to say about that. I mean, uh, he makes it sound very unimportant. And- <laughs> Well, it's not to them. And we'll pick up that discussion next week. Uh, this book just gets more and more confusing every time I read it. The colors and the cars, the eyes, the dust. I mean, it's all subtext and juggling all that while you're reading it. So that's the hard part. But anyway, thanks for listening. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this discussion with us. Visit our website for listening guides of this book as well as all the books we discuss. And visit our social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and now YouTube. Peace out. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.